How are we doing, Revolution? Okay. Now, since we are in the mission field of Ohio and the Buckeyes managed to squeeze by a victory thanks to bad referees, you should be more happy than that. So let's hear that again. How are you doing, Revolution? There we go. Thank you very much. I know that you're probably down that this week, the number three high school recruit in the country, Julius Randall, committed to Kentucky, making Kentucky now have six of the top 20 players coming in next year. Andrew Wiggins will commit to Kentucky, making it the Magnificent Seven. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> praise be to God. So, that being said, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we are in uh, chapter 10. We're going to be in 10, 13. We're going to go through all the chapter. So, I mean, don't freak out. The entire sermon is basically going to be, we're going to read through it, comment on it. I'm going to say one thing and quit, all right? So, but we're going to get through chapter 10 so that we can get to the triumphal entry next week in chapter 11, which will coincide with a baptism next week for Easter. So, that is where we are going. Hope you guys have had a good weekend dealing with the weird weather. Welcome to the set of Saw 4, by the way. Um, and I spent the day watching college basketball, drinking vitamin water, and teaching my son to play Dungeons and Dragons. So, which means I am just waiting for somebody like to pants me in the hall and stuff me in a locker. <laughs> but I'm trying to get it so that my son becomes a complete nerd so that he never has a girlfriend and never has the trouble I did in high school. Here we go. Mark 10, 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus. Now, remember, this is coming right on the back of what we looked at at divorce last week. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. They're thinking, Jesus is too busy for this, da 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 and when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Now, he is saying that those who come to trust him are those who have faith. Faith is not just belief that Jesus lived, died, and, and, and rose. Like just another thing you believe. Like, you know, today's weather stinks, all that kind of stuff. It's not like that. There's a trust factor there. So what he's saying is that people who come to him, the kind of faith that he wants, the kind of faith we all hope to grow into, is the kind of faith where you come to a complete trust in Jesus Christ. And he's comparing it to a child. Now, my, speaking of my son, right? He's almost 10 years old, but when he was like three and four and all that kind of stuff, and I would go to get him from, you know, from his bed when he'd wake up from a nap, he would get up from his bed, I would put out my arms, and he would just jump, right? He didn't think anything of it. Dad's going to catch him. He just trusted that, and that's the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about, the kind of faith that you move to the point where you just trust Jesus. Verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. 
Now, I remember the first couple of times I read through the Bible, I, I, I read that and thought, why is Jesus saying that? And then it occurred to me, because he's getting ready to test this young guy. He's, he's kind of testing him now. He's saying, only God is good. Why do you call me good? What is he waiting to hear? He's waiting to hear the guy say, you're God. He's waiting for that. He doesn't get it, which tees up what comes next. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of time talking tonight. Verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments... You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and your mother. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, Jesus left out one. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 20, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, a cynic in me wants to say, (laughs) well, you're a liar. Um, And verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, if you've been tracking with what we've been doing in Mark, when Jesus comes and says, come follow me, he's inviting that person to be a disciple. This is a serious invitation. This is the highest honor a Jewish person can be given, is to become a disciple of a rabbi. So he's offering him, truly offering him, a great opportunity. But look at verse 22. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. He could not get rid of his stuff to follow Jesus. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact... It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Now, a couple things here real quick. One, if you think this verse does not apply to you because you're not Bill Gates, right? Um... Most of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. So, in God's neighborhood, you're all rich. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is this. Some people have tried to play with this verse and twist it so to make it to soften the impact. A, A legend arose in the Middle Ages that said that there used to be this gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle and a camel would have to get down and you you would have to scrunch it to get it through. There was no such gate. It never existed. That is a myth. That is something people twisted to try to soften the impact of this verse. I have been in, when I was in seminary, I was a third-year seminary student, I was helping my teachers teach the Bible classes for freshmen. I heard some very interesting interpretations of this verse. My favorite was, well, if you get a camel going at the speed of light, then it's possible to shoot it through the eye of a needle. I don't know how you're going to get a camel going at the speed of light, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. So again, this is a tough teaching. This is especially a tough teaching because Jews... Jews did this. Now, I know this is going to be foreign to you. 
But Jews interpreted wealth and success as blessings from God. So therefore, if you were wealthy, it's because God made you that way. You were in God's favor. Ever heard that on radio, TV, from preachers? Joe Osteen, those kind of people, right? Okay. But Jesus just said it is easier for a camel to get through, a literal camel to get through the literal eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to get into heaven. Why? He's looking at this young man and he says to him, don't lie, take care of your parents, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I've done all that. He left a commandment out. The first, the, he left the first commandment out, which is to have no other gods before the God. And that he has not done. Because his money and stuff was his God. That came before God. And he could not give that up. That commandment he has not obeyed. Martin Luther used to say that if you obey the first commandment to, put, to worship nothing but the one true God, you have already kept all the other commandments. Because you won't do the rest. If God is at the center of your life, if God is primary, everything else will fall into place. It just will. It just will. Wealth is not the key. Verse 28 Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. Now, what is he saying? He's not saying that if you give up all your stuff, I'll give you more stuff. That is not what he's saying. Because he says, on top of that, you're going to get persecution. In other words, they're going to lock you up and try to kill you. He's saying that you're going to get something much, much better than all of that. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then, those who serve, those who give, those who sacrifice, those who never make the cover of Forbes, those who E never talks about, those people will be the ones that at the end of days, when eternity begins and this world goes away, they will be at the front of the line. They will be there. Everything in the kingdom of God is upside down. That's how it works. The faith that Jesus wants us to strive for is not the kind of faith where we say, we repeat the little prayer, and then we treat the fact that I'm a Christian the same way that I belong to this country club. Right? I like this kind of music. It's not just something you tack on at the edges of your life. It demands the center of your life or nothing. Or nothing. It demands everything. Verse 32. We'll come back and talk about whether or not you're all going to hell for having money in a minute, I promise. (laughs) They were now on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe 
and people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now, Jesus just said, I am demanding you give up everything for me. What is he giving up for you? Anything less? He's saying, I'm willing to come down from my throne in heaven to come down and be mocked and killed by the very people I created before the beginning of time for you. Is he asking anything of you that he hasn't done himself? Nothing. Nothing. But then see how they respond. I love the disciples. They're so stupid, just like me. Verse 35 It comforts me. Then 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Jesus had to be thinking, were you just listening five minutes ago? What were you doing? Were you singing in your head? What were you doing? But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? That's a way of talking about the cross. In other words, he's saying, you want to sit at my right and left? You want to go to the cross with me? Because that's what it costs. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? I must be baptized with. Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, Well, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. In other words, they would die a martyr's death. And be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. In other words, they were ticked. And so Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Is it different in the church? Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, this is an upside-down kingdom. This is not a place where you earn respect. You earn placement by money and stuff. You earn by suffering and serving. The exact opposite from what the world teaches. Now, unfortunately, I, myself, I don't know about you. I'm guessing you're probably in the same boat. I do exactly what the disciples do. Right? This is the worst part of religion. The worst part of religion is I go to church... I help people who are hurting, therefore God owes me. Right? Um, The disciples said, we left everything to follow you. We've we've suffered for all of like two years. So, hey, how about a little promise of something, something in the future, right? And Jesus, you're not listening. This is not how this works. It is not how it works. If you've been given eternal life, why are you bargaining for anything else? When you're getting eternal life that you don't deserve as it is, why are you trying to bargain for anything else? 
Now, there's nothing wrong. Trust me. There is nothing wrong because I've, I've had surgery, two surgeries in the last few months. I've had to go through it. I've, I've been there where I've asked God, hey, God, can you make this stop, please? I understand that. There's nothing wrong with asking. But asking and thinking you've deserved it are two different things. Those are two different things. God may, in grace upon grace, grant your prayer, but he does not have to because you have not earned it. And you need to understand that. You've already, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, been given eternal life, and you don't deserve that. You have no right to ask for anything else. But we do this. Despite the fact that that we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we've been told that we have eternity, what do we do? We still clamor and and angst out and all that kind of stuff over money, stuff, position, fame. We do it, don't we? Despite the fact that we know that that nothing can be taken away from us. Because we have the love of God, if somebody comes up to us and kills us right now, they actually, in some strange, cosmic, eternal way, do us a favor because the next moment we're with Jesus Christ and suffering is no more. And yet, we stress out about the stuff that is so easy to, okay. (laughs) I'll stop. Made my point. Moving on. Verse 46. He only has to tell me once. I don't want to know where it goes from there. That was a heck of a rainstorm, I guess. Then they reached Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. And when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which is the only legitimate prayer for us almost always anyway, isn't it? Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, Tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus said, Go, for your faith has healed you. And look at this. Instantly a man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Does he ask for anything more? Does he say, okay, great, you gave me my sight. Now, how about a six-figure salary and um, with no responsibilities, no oversight, unlimited um, Internet access, and some really good coffee? Right? He has been given this gift of sight. He just begins to follow him. How much more have we been given? How much more have those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ been given? And the disciples don't get it. The rich man doesn't get it. So far, only the kids and the blind beggar get it. They just follow. I mean, that's it. You just go. You just go. And he does not promise you anything. He just doesn't. He tells the disciples, are you willing, are you willing to suffer like me? And since they don't think he's going to suffer, they say, sure. 
And many of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we say the little prayer, we come to the altar, we've been in a youth group where people start crying and we do the emotional thing, we just go, we do it, no problem, whatever, because we never ever think that anything bad was going to happen to us. But when we sign up for faith in Jesus Christ, He says that you will go where I will send you and some will prosper and others will suffer and you don't get to pick which is which. And if you suffer, you suffer. But in the meantime, what do we do? We chase. We chase money. We chase money. We chase money. We chase money. We chase money because we think it will give us stuff. We think money will be a Messiah. Money will be the Messiah that will take us from insecurity to security. That will take us from boredom to all kinds of stuff to do. That will take us from unattractive to everybody wants me. From I can't get anything I want to I can get anything I want. And so we define this is hell, this is heaven, and money will take us there. Right? We do this. Second church I ever worked at, sat down one night with my youth group, said, write down what you want your life to be like in 20 years. Every single one of them. I want big house. I want sweet cars. I want a hot spouse who never gains a pound. I want lots of money, no responsibility. I said, okay. Now, will any of those things in and of themselves make you happy? Well, no. Well, then are you stupid or crazy? You say, all I want is this stuff that I know has not made anyone happy or fulfilled. We say that, but really in our heart of hearts, what I really think we're thinking is, it'll make me happy and fulfilled. And that means we think it's a God. Do we not? And that's the problem. I have met, I have met wealthy people in my jobs. I have met wealthy people who are miserable. And I have met, met wealthy people who are happy. And I have met poor people who are happy and poor people who are wealthy. And the happy people both have the same thing in common. It's not about them. At the center of their life, it is not about them. It is not about their money. I know a guy in Pittsburgh in 2008 when the economy fell apart and you could not find work in Pittsburgh if you were a stealer. And the guy was still making money hand over fist. He just could make money. And there was one year he gave 90% of it away. 90% he gave away. He's been audited by the IRS again and again because they don't believe somebody could give that much money away. And he's the happiest guy I know. He lives in a little house. He drives a used, beat-up minivan. Clothes all have frayed collars and all that kind of stuff. The guy's a millionaire. You never know that. But he gives it all away. He's the happiest guy. And when you sit down and tell him what, what's been going on with his money, how it did this, how it does that, he just starts laughing and smiling. And I've been in D.C. and Hollywood with people who are stacking up bank accounts in Switzerland and the Cayman Islands and all that kind of stuff. Most miserable human beings you will ever meet. 
Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man, it is so hard for a rich man to get into heaven. And by that, he means anybody who is comfortable, and that includes all of us. And the disciples were like, well, then who could be saved? And he said, it's not possible for you. It's only possible with God. And what he means by that is this. If the Spirit of God moves into you, whether you are rich or poor, and you don't care about what you have, you only care about what you can do for other people. When you really become like the blind man and the children, whether you have a lot of money or none, you are the first in the kingdom. So yeah, look, you can have a nice house. You can have a good job. You can have a nice car, nice clothes, all that kind of stuff. But if it controls you, if that's what defines you, you need to get rid of it. And I'm not saying, is he saying metaphorically I need to end my mind? No, I mean you need to literally get rid of that crap. Are you saying that if I become a millionaire, I need to move into like some cruddy house and, and drive a used car? Maybe. Maybe you do. Is, 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 it, is does that blow your mind to the point where you're just like, okay, I'll go to hell, but at least I'll look really good now? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what is your God? Because what defines you is your God. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your heart and that defines you, you will not care to be the least person. You will be, if you're the most powerful person in the room, you don't have any problem washing everybody else's feet. Because that's at the center of your existence. If you have to be the most, per, most important person in the world, in the room, you've got problems, man. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care how much talent you got. You've got problems. And when Jesus comes again, you're going to wish it had all changed. It was all different. This time that we're living right now is the shortest time in all of eternity. And that's what you have to keep in mind. And I know that's tough. I know that is tough. I have done little things. I've got a long way to go, just like all of you do. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. I grew up a metalhead. Still a metalhead. I love it. I had this... I know it's stupid. I know this is silly. You've, some of you have heard it before. I had this huge CD collection. When I say huge CD collection, I don't mean 100, 300, 500, 1,000... 3,000. I had a huge CD collection. It took up a room. I had Iron Maiden bootlegs. I had, I had it all. Right? The original 1986 first Guns N' Roses album before they were signed to Geffen Records. I had it. I had it all. I had a limited edition Iron Maiden box set with Eddie in steel on the top And I realized I loved this more than I loved God. That I thought more about that stuff than I did Jesus Christ. And so, not me, but the spirit working within me went, I told my wife, you know how you've always wanted me to get rid of those CDs? 
go sell them and do it now before I change my mind. As she, <laughs> no comments from the peanut gallery, even from my beloved wife. All right, so we. She took all the CDs. She started to sell them. She's coming to me, and she did not help. I love you, but she even came to me. Do you know how much this Iron Maiden thing is worth? Shut up. So, <laughs> and she took it and she sold it. And it still hurts. <laughs> I had the three Pantera albums before they signed with it. Never mind. So, <laughs> and she sold them. And, but that was necessary. And there's got to be a whole kinds of other kind of stuff in my life that needs to go too. And probably in yours. I had a professor tell me, if there's anything between you and God, sell it. Get rid of it. And he meant it literally. Get rid of it. The only thing you're not allowed to get rid of is your family, and there you just have to reconfigure it. Other than that, you've got to get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because there is nothing more important than you and God. You do not want to be standing there on Judgment Day when Jesus has on the right, his right hand those who have been faithful to him, and on his left hand those who have not, and you do not want to be resurrected on the left side because of stuff. You want to be over here. It is better to be over here on his right and poor and forgotten and skinny or fat and pimply or whatever over here than to have lived a few decades of temporary short pleasures over here and an eternity away from God. That's the way it is. And the only way you get from there to here is to understand that Jesus Christ left His throne on heaven, came down here, faced every temptation, lived a perfect life despite that, died a death on the cross in your place to take the penalty for all of your sins, rose again, went to heaven to intercede on your behalf, and when He comes again, He will say to all the people in front of Him who have been faithful, all the people on His right, He will say, these people, I have paid their penalty, so there is no penalty for them. One, two, I lived a perfect life for them. I am granting that perfect life to them, so that when God looks at you, He sees His Son, and you get eternity with Jesus Christ. And when you really understand that, when that moves from here to here, everything changes. If you get that first commandment, you should have no other gods before me. Everything else falls in line. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that nothing is possible for us. We are all here in the grand scope of the world wealthy. Many of us who are at Christ Community Church today or yesterday saw the children of the world who, who are happy just to have clean water. We are so wealthy. And that we still just want more, even though what we have has not made us happier, has not made us content, has not made us more loving. We need you. We need nothing to stand between us and you. We need to know that first commandment, and we need to know your gospel so that that first commandment defines us. And what I pray tonight is that everyone here who knows the gospel with their head knows that you died for them and lived for them with their head, that that moves to their heart so that it takes over their life.
So even if it's something silly and stupid, like selling a bunch of CDs, or whether it's something more serious, like giving up an addiction to get closer to you, may it be, because there's nothing more sacred, more holy, more important. Eternally, it's all that matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.